Oh boy, Assassin's Creed 3. So I've been looking forward to kind of revisiting this one, uh, because I'm not sure I really gave it a fair shake back when it originally came out. Um, Assassin's Creed 3 was really well-hyped back in 2012. It was a huge release, almost certainly the biggest release in the franchise to date. Um, remember, this is Ubisoft after one game that was basically just a proof of concept, a second game which was very much, you know, critically adored and appreciated, two very much weaker games that were basically just tack-on sequels. Now it was finally time for Ubisoft to say, hey, we can keep this series going. So Assassin's Creed 3, they pulled out all the stops, all the bells and whistles, they were hyping the living daylights out of this game. And I remember in 2012, when in fact they started the hype machine, when E3 rolled around and they announced this game, and it's huge, and it's, you know, going to be this big deal, and they're like, it's going to be the American Revolution! And everyone's, like, cheering and going nuts, and oh my gosh, the American Revolution, this is going to be awesome! And I was like, no. Don't get me wrong, I think the colonial American setting is a pretty cool idea. It makes sense that they would do a game at this point in time, but for years now, for years, since they released the original first game, I have been waiting for exotic settings. I have wanted to see, you know, like, the Sengoku Jedi in, in Japan. I wanted to see Warring States China. I wanted to see French Revolution. I wanted to see any number of places and times that I had never had access to. And here I was, in 2012, literally living in Boston, and they're like, we're going to make a game that's set in Boston. And I was just... Like, as much as the hype machine was absolutely just rolling out the red carpet for this game, and American audiences especially were absolutely psyched to see themselves being represented, I was very indifferent um, as soon as they announced it. And on some level, you know, I find this to be itself a kind of fascinating phenomenon. Like, I think back to the passage in the Bible where, like, Jesus is talking to his brothers and sisters um, and, you know, his mother and father in Galilee, and, they're and like, none of them care. They're like, hey, you're that kid who used to live here. And he's like, no one is, rep is recognized in their own time. Um, and at the same time, I think of, like, my students when I was a substitute teacher. I definitely had one day where we were all just sort of abandoned in the computer lab with very little direction. Um, and a whole bunch of my students got on Google Earth and were just screwing around on Google Earth. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. So I look over their shoulder, and they're all looking at the same, like, half a mile of territory that's basically their home, our school, Main Street in town. And I'm like, oh my gosh... You have the entire world at your disposal. You can, like, change the satellite view to look at literally anything, and you're looking at your own backyard. Like, are you out of your mind? Go look at Paris. Go look at China. Go look at, you know, some of the greatest landmarks, some of the greatest natural phenomena. Like, I remember the story of when they, like, discovered this weird airplane crash in the middle of Google Maps just because a bunch of people were just sort of futzing around the system. And what I want to get at here is that we have a really weird tension in this game between the familiar and the unfamiliar. Um, Assassin's Creed 3 was marketed as a sort of pandering tactic, especially to American audiences, as a kind of celebration of American heritage. Like, the original trailers were Connor, like, charging into a Revolutionary War battle. The, the art on the front of the box is literally, like... 
Connor with a tomahawk getting ready to, like, stick it to some random British soldier. Like, this was 4th of July, the American flag, you know, everything about American patriotism boiled down into a single game in typically Assassin's Creed fashion, i.e. we're doing history, not, like, Call of Duty-style jingoism here. And I didn't want that. Like, that was not ever what I asked for. That's not what I was looking forward to from this franchise. And on some level, I was okay with it. It's like, alright, so, you know, we have been following the exploits of the various assassins relatively chronologically since the Crusades. You know, we went to the Crusades with, with Altair and then the Renaissance, which was cool. I'm down for that. Um, obviously, if we are going to get to the French Revolution, I guess it makes sense to stop off at the American Revolution first. But it was just... Why? Why this game? Why this time? Um, and I should emphasize, like, Boston was not nice to me when I was, when I was living there. Like, I am a down-home country boy from Sussex County, New Jersey. It is as rural as New Jersey gets there. I was not prepared for city life. Um, and I know that that probably makes me sound like some sort of rube or something, and, and that's fair, because, you know, Boston is hardly the most, you know, serious or, like, threatening American city by a long shot. Um, but it just, it took time for me to adapt to this culture, this lifestyle, the, the fact that there was just buildings and muck and, and gross smells all over the place, that I couldn't just, like, drive for 20 minutes and end up in the middle of a forest somewhere and just walk around amongst trees and, and you know, gardens and so on. Like, I miss greenery. Um, I spent a lot of time at the park just outside of the reservoir by, by Boston College. Like, that was where I went to recharge, um, and I needed that place. Um, I took great pleasure in just the little glimpses of natural life that I saw speckled around the city. And I did not go out much. Um, like, I say this knowing full well that it's like I didn't get the full Boston experience, but I didn't want the full Boston experience. Like, my roommate at the time was absolutely going out every night, and, you know, going to restaurants, going to clubs, the whole nine yards. That did not interest me. Like, I, I wanted to do my studies. I wanted to, you know, read my books. I wanted to get as little of that city as I possibly could. Um, and I, I know, like, this is personal. This is purely personal. What I want to emphasize here, though, is the way that it influenced my reading of this game. Like, I was done with Boston. I was over Boston. And then one of my favorite game franchises was like, and here's more Boston. Here is the great city of Boston. More Boston, more, you know, colonial Boston, more the history of Boston. And I, I got it, and I played it, and I swear I spent less time... Like, I, I did virtually none of the side quests. I blew through that thing so quickly and was done. Like, this is literally the first time I've picked up that game since 2012 when it first came out, and I played it, you know, in a matter of weeks just to be done with it. Um, so I've always kind of been resentful of this game. Like, it's it was just the wrong game for me. You know, the fact that it is focusing on an area of the country that I am extremely familiar with, a part of history that I had been taught over and over again and didn't care to learn that much about. Um, the fact that the two primary cities were Boston and New York City, i.e. the two cities that I had grown up with in my backyard and that I was currently living in. Like, 
I didn't have the sort of excitement for this game the way that I did even for something like Assassin's Creed uh, Revelations, which took place in Constantinople, a city I found interesting and, and sort of fascinating to engage with. Um, and then I played the game, and it was more of that. Like, the cities themselves are gross and dumpy and ugly and smelly. Like, you can't actually, you know, smell what's going on in the game for certain. But when you see random pigs and rats running around the street, you get a pretty good idea. Um, and I've since done my homework. Like, I've researched the history of American cities. Like, I've read an entire book on the subject of just Baltimore in order to prepare for one of the novels that I was reading. And it is true to form. Like, everything that they show in those games is absolutely historically rooted, absolutely historically accurate. Like, most American cities in the 18th and 19th century did have to pass legislation about the wandering pigs running through the streets and ended up kind of having to whirl back that legislation when they figured out that the only reason that the garbage was getting eaten was because the pigs were roaming around. Like, this is absolutely true to life. I have no complaints about what the designers actually did. It just wasn't the game I wanted. Um, I wanted the slick streets and, and back alleys of Venice. That was, you know, still to date my favorite location in the entire Assassin's Creed franchise. Um, I loved the, the like, exotic orientation of the landmarks of Constantinople. I wanted another city that I had never been to and would likely never go to again. I wanted, you know, to hang out in twentieth or early 20th century Moscow or St. Petersburg. I wanted to hang out in Tokyo or Osaka. I wanted to go to Paris during the French Revolution. I wanted any number of cities with great long histories that have been around forever and have been awesome you know, landmarks in the history of human civilization, and instead I got a game that was supposedly for me, supposedly directed to me and my political sentiments, and I wanted nothing to do with it. Now, the one thing that I will absolutely say that I especially enjoyed this last time around was the frontier. Um, and we'll talk about the frontier. Like, that, that was a huge part of this game, and I remember it being a huge part of this game from when I was playing it in 2012. At the time, I think it annoyed me more than anything, because I, again, liked my Assassin's Creed taking place in big exotic cities that I would never be able to go to or spend time in, especially in the historical locations that have long since been lost to time. Whereas the frontier is basically my backyard. <laughs> um, but, again, this time around, I have a greater appreciation for what they were doing with the frontier, and we'll we'll talk about that in its own time. Um, so with that, like, emotional, personal life caveat in place, let's talk about Assassin's Creed 3. Because, again, the reason why I wanted to play it again was because I wanted to give it a fair shake this time. I wanted to see what I had missed the first time around because I had been just so flat-out disappointed by the game the first time around. Um, and I should emphasize that as much as my experience is, you know, very much my own, and I, I am trying to emphasize, like, how little I appreciated what Assassin's Creed 3 was doing at the time, how unfair I was being, my response mirrors the critical response. Like, we should emphasize, again, right here at the outset, 
Ubisoft had gone out of its way to promote this game as the definitive American experience. Like, you look at the box art, and you've got, you know, Ignite the Revolution, written in high, like, re really impressive bold font on the back, with, you know, Connor, like, taking out red coats left and right. Um, again, the marketing for this game had very much leaned into the sort of American iconography. American colonialism as sort of the foundation of what we're doing here. Um... But we also are, are talking about a lot of other sort of elements involving the American Revolution. Like, everyone was really excited that, you know, just as you got to hang out with Leonardo da Vinci and Suleiman the Magnificent back in, you know, earlier Assassin's Creed titles, now you get to hang out with George Washington and Founding Fathers and stuff. Um, we get ship battles. Like, this is prominently placed on the back of the box as well and was very much a heavy part of the advertising going into it. But yeah, there's going to be actual naval battles. You're going to command a ship and sail it around and shoot at people. Um, we've also got the multiplayer coming back for some reason. Like, it's been a fixture of the games for the last several years, so I guess we're going to do more of that. I, on this one, just didn't play it. Like, I was happy to try it out for brotherhood but at this point all the servers are down for all of these games there's there's really no point in like trying to scare up a multiplayer session at this point um and i should emphasize that like as much as all of this is exciting and some of this is even new like this was more of the same you know we're talking about a functionally a new engine, like we are looking at a radical new interpretation of the Assassin's Creed formula, but it is still the Assassin's Creed formula. We are just iterating on what we did in Assassin's Creed 2 and Brotherhood and Revelations. Um, there wasn't anything besides the ship battles that was a dramatic change from what has gone before. Like, even in the hype machine, that was very much clear. As for what's going on behind the scenes at Ubisoft, like we've done our fair share of speculation about the other games, Assassin's Creed 3 is the new tentpole of the series. Like, this is very clear from the fact that they put a number on it instead of a, you know, colon. Um, so we know that this is, this is a new branch of the series. This is intended to wrap up the Desmond storyline, the whole business about the sun going to kill us and all of the random mysterious god figures from ancient, like, proto-pre-human history. Um, all that weird conspiracy theory stuff that we've kind of introduced and then backpedaled off of due to, you know, the whole futzy and brotherhood and revelations. It's time to wrap that up. Like, this is meant to be the last entry in what is functionally a trilogy, despite the fact that there are five games and none of them necessarily, you know, have any real narrative coherence. Um, like, this is supposed to be a big release, and it, Ubisoft knows this, and again, they're putting a lot of work into it. But it's still a yearly release. Like, since Assassin's Creed 2, these things have been coming out literally every year. Um, so on the one hand, yay, we're going to, like, have this big, crazy, pull-out-all-the-stops release. On the other hand, it's easy to see that the same sort of corporate motivation is motivating Assassin's Creed 3 as much as it did Brotherhood and, and uh, Revelations. Like, we're spending the same amount of time on a game that is supposed to be the full $60 experience and not sort of a tacit, like, throwaway expansion slash sequel. 
where Revelations and Brotherhood kind of got a pass, but I had specifically not paid the full $60 price tag for either of them, Assassin's Creed 3 demanded attention. It was promising to be something bigger, something better, something newer, and it's not? Like, it's complicated. We'll talk about that. Um, we should also mention, though, that as far as, you know, I, I've kept talking about how Assassin's Creed 2 and Brotherhood and, and Revelations are also cribbing off of the Uncharted 2 formula, which was at that time, like, the biggest game that, you know, Ubisoft was sort of watching while they did this. It is very clear from playing Assassin's Creed 3 that Ubisoft has shifted their attention from uh, the, the Uncharted franchise to Red Dead Redemption. Um, Red Dead Redemption came out in 2010 and was, like, the biggest game on PS3 for quite a while. Like, once again, we have another huge open-world game, but this is Rockstar we're talking about. Rockstar does not mess around. Um, and honestly, I loved Red Dead Redemption. Like, it is still one of my favorite games for the console, one of my favorite games of the console generation. Um, just, and it is, again, thoroughly American just American West instead of American colonialism. So on some level, you have to think that Ubisoft is like giving Rockstar the side eye on this one and being like, hey, why are you muscling in on our territory? You know, we do the big open world, like historical genre games. But honestly, Red Dead Redemption was itself the sequel to Red Dead Revolver, which like, it's a long story. At any rate, a lot of the characteristics that made Red Redemption made Red Dead Redemption so popular and so, quote, important, are very much here in Assassin's Creed 3. Uh, we've got our sort of, like, small-town feel rather than the, the big, sprawling metropolis. Uh, we've got tons of little random mini-games where you just, like, sit down, bet money, and play a game with some, some random people, just like in Red Dead Redemption, where you get to, like, sit down and play a hand of poker or blackjack or something. Um... There's a lot of wild animals hanging around in Red Dead Redemption that can totally kill you at a, at a moment's notice, um, just as there are in Assassin's Creed 3. Like, you can get jumped by wolves or a bobcat, or, which that one just confuses me. Bobcats don't do that. that that's not a thing. Um, but, yeah, all of the things that Red Dead Redemption kind of had going for it to make for a realistic and immersive world, Assassin's Creed 3 cribs off of a lot. You'll be spending a lot of time riding the horse in this game. You'll be spending a lot of time hunting animals in this game. You'll be spending a lot of time fending off animal attacks in this game. All of which is just like good old Red Dead Redemption. Um, and again, that brings us back to the frontier. Um, the frontier was not a huge part of the marketing on Assassin's Creed 3, which is probably part of the reason why people didn't respond to it terribly well. Um, but you spend a lot of time in this game wandering around the backwoods of New England slash the North Atlantic coast, just hunting stuff, climbing through trees, avoiding British patrols, wandering through these little small towns like Lexington and Concord, um, and generally just making money by skinning animals and selling their pelts and stuff. And it's weird. Like, it's really weird. It's weird because it's not what we've expected from Assassin's Creed in the past, for sure. Um, like, 
for all that we had, those those sort of big rural areas, you know, big open fields and stuff in Tuscany and, and some of the locations in the Assassin's Creed 2 and Brotherhood games, you know, we've seen nothing quite so wooded and come and just like involved as far as the intermediary place like you've got the kingdom back in assassin's creed one which is basically like the hub for all of the other places but really the kingdom just serves as like an obstacle course you have to ride your horse from one town to another avoiding patrols um and you're not really interacting with the environment unless you're going flag hunting which for some reason i always did the flag hunting in the kingdom i, I did in fact find rather engaging but here in the frontier this is real open world it's not like canyons that are ultimately linear just sort of interlocking various places where you can do uh little side missions this is a wide open space that you spend a lot of time just being in interacting with um and again much like red dead redemption that's intentional like that's by design um this is where you're going to be making most of your money by hunting animals and, and sort of engaging in these you know frontier and, and like hunting society missions um a lot of the side quests are going to take place here and a lot of the main missions are going to take place here whenever we are taking the opportunity to have like a big battle scene where you know a whole bunch of like redcoats and patriots are lining up on opposite sides of the stream or something or like trying to take control of the bridge it's going to take place here so it does double duty insofar as it's a big open sandboxy area for you to play around in and make money in and you know serve as sort of the foundation of the game's economy it is also serving as, hey, this is our, going to be our set dressing for some of our biggest set pieces in the game. So I totally understand why it's in here. But it is weird that it turns out to be so much a part of this game. Um, what's more, the frontier ties directly into the homestead. Like, you'll remember from Assassin's Creed 2, we had the sort of home base uh, where, you know, you, you hang out with your uncle and you build the, the town up and you sort of save the day. And that evolves into actually saving Rome and Constantinople in the, the two sequels. Like, you're literally bringing the community back to life, which is, I think, is really a cool thing. Here in the homestead, though, they bring it to a pretty new level. Um, you are... You know, when you and as Connor meet Achilles and find his his big colonial manor on the top of the hill in the middle of the woods somewhere, presumably in New Hampshire or Vermont, um, you are invited to sort of bring more people onto the homestead to get you know all of the woodworkers and and tailor and a doctor and a blacksmith and farmers and so on. You, you're kind of doing this whole series of side quests and mini games to sort of recruit people to join your homestead and be able to turn it into a self-sufficient society in its own right, which is kind of really cool. Especially because the first time I played through Assassin's Creed 3, again, because I kind of dis had that distaste for the game, but I missed that. And honestly, the Homestead missions are one of the coolest elements of this entire game. Like, both from a story perspective, as well as a gameplay perspective. And it is buried. Like, this is not part of the pitch. Um, as much as I'm sitting here trying to sort of, like, capture what is going through Ubisoft's mind at this point, this was absolutely the lead being buried. Um, the Homestead missions are awesome, 
and they do not appear on the box anywhere. They did not appear in the marketing virtually anywhere. This came out of left field. It was really cool if you bothered to pay attention to it. Again, most gamers probably didn't because they were just blowing through the story missions trying to see more of George Washington and, you know, big epic battles between, you know, patriots and loyalists, Mel Gibson style. Um, but this is really kind of the part of the whole game. So what I want to emphasize is that we are back in Assassin's Creed Brotherhood and Revelations territory. We, like, as though we ever left... We have a game that doesn't know what it's about here. It is confused. It is obviously the product of multiple teams working on multiple elements of this game, and those elements being kind of hastily stitched together at the last minute. Because there are a lot of cool things going on in this game. We've got the naval battles, we've got the homestead missions, we've got hunting in the frontier, we've got both Boston and New York, we've got this whole epic storyline about Hatham Kenway and Connor, and, you know, we've also got, like, the backdrop of the Revolutionary War. There is a lot going on, but a lot of the time it is going to be disjoint and disconnected. So with that in mind, let's talk gameplay. Let's talk about all the random stuff you can do in this game and talk about how the game sort of both inherits its legacy from the games prior and how we are turning away from them. Um, so first of all, let's talk about one of the things that has been constant here. Let's talk combat. Um, obviously, from Assassin's Creed 1 on, I've been very concerned with the whole what, do, what are we doing as far as the fighting, the running away, the stealth, all of that. Um, and Assassin's Creed 3 takes a surprising move insofar as the player is weakened here in Assassin's Creed 3 compared to the other games. Many times in this game I felt myself suddenly wanting those bombs that we had in Assassin's Creed Revelations, or I wanted the double, the double uh, hidden blade like we had with Ezio in the entire Assassin's Creed 2 series. Um, there is a deliberate move away from that kind of power here. The stealth mechanics are considerably more limited. There, you have considerably fewer options for navigating around the, the area, and you're, you have considerably fewer options for actually fighting as well. Um, like, basically, the, the real difference here, the real key to what Assassin's Creed 3 offers as far as the combat, um, you've got your tomahawk, like, serving as your primary weapon, which you can, in fact, replace with, like, a saber or any number of weapons that you can either buy or forge yourself um, using the homestead missions. Um, you've got a pistol, flintlock pistol, which takes forever to reload, as is, you know, historically appropriate, um, which you can also replace with any number of alternatives. The duckfoot pistol is especially exciting since it can shoot, like, three people at once. Um, and you will find muskets littered around the battlefield. Like, frequently when you are hanging around in a fort or when you are doing a mission, you'll see just a rack of these muskets, which, again, is very period appropriate. This would have been the primary weapon that everybody was using at this particular time. And when we say musket, we mean the whole shebang. You've got the musket, you've got the whole, like, complicated loading sequence, you've got the bayonet on the end, which is honestly what you're going to be using more often than not. Um... The whole combat situation is going to boil down to your interaction with probably these three weapons. Um, likewise, we're also toning down the number of enemies. So you are weaker, but so are your opponents. 
Um, unlike Assassin's Creed 2 and its successors, there were a ton where there were a ton of like weird enemies, guys who were really fast and who you could defeat very easily, but who would dodge your attacks if you tried to attack them directly. You had the big heavy dudes who you know you couldn't hurt them directly unless you like d disarmed them first. Many of that of those sorts of changes are gone here. Um, in Assassin's Creed 3, you're going to effectively run into four enemies. You're going to run into your run-of-the-mill soldier, who you can defeat any way you feel like. You're going to have the little fast dudes who will not be disarmed and who are resistant to your sneakiness. Um, you've got the heavy grenadiers who you've got to disarm before you can successfully hurt them. And you've got your weird specialist troops, like the Jaegers who you've got to be real clever about, because they are particularly tricky and will, will follow you very carefully. Um, all that to say, though, that ultimately your interactions with all of them are going to boil down to, are you attacking them directly, are you going to just shoot them in the face, if you've in fact got, you know, ammo to spare at this point, or are you going to have to disarm them first? That's literally it. You've got three fundamental things that you're going to do. The closest thing the game gets to a more sophisticated way to deal with enemies is there are a couple of fights where you have to, like, throw enemies into environmental objects in order to incapacitate them. This happens twice in the entire game, from what I can tell. Uh, maybe three times if you get imaginative with the way that the Boston Brawlers work. That's it. So combat, as much as you're going to spend a lot of time in combat, because, again, the amount of options you have for stealth are pretty limited, um, as much as you're going to spend time in combat, it's not terribly interesting. We are back to Assassin's Creed 1 levels of just plowing through enemies with relatively little danger from them, as long as you know the basic ways to get around them and to deal with each of the individual types of enemy. Which is weird. Um, on the one hand, this might very well be an indication that, like, we were so busy cramming other cool stuff into this game that we just ignored the combat, like, the basic fundamental way that you're going to be interacting with enemies throughout most of the game. Um, it's clearly not a focus here, even though it is one of the things you're going to spend a lot of time doing. So, once again, we're in Assassin's Creed territory insofar as we're just battling through waves of enemies that are time-consuming more than they are, in fact, dangerous or, or perilous, except for, like, the very early parts of the game where you haven't learned all the tricks. Um, so why not then just run away? Well, running away also isn't as exciting as it used to be. Like, running away is now less harrowing, um, because there are actually quite a few options for running away. Like, this is surprisingly more robust here in Assassin's Creed 3. Um, there are hiding locations more frequently dotted around, even though they are occasionally harder to see, and they are not marked on the map, by the way, which honestly does make it a little bit more challenging. Um, but in addition to your jumping into haystacks and the occasional, like, like, uh, little booth with the, the hanging curtains like we saw in many of the past games. Um, they are very much reduced here, though, where you don't see them very often at all. Um, you also now have the option to, like, run through somebody's random house. Like, you'll see doors and windows open and people standing in them, and you can just push past them and just, like, run through the house and come out on the opposite side of the building, which is very useful for evading pursuit and 
uh, will frequently throw folks off the track. Um, you also have just like high growing grass places, especially in the frontier, which you can hide in. Um, you just have to like stand in it, and if you are undetected, you'll just automatically crouch down. Um, they're very useful for stealth attacks as well. But they are intermittent, and you can't really predict when they're going to show up. Um, so they're not terribly useful for that sort of stealthy approach, much as they are littered through many of the forts. Um, the other trick is, as much as like I'm trying to you know, emphasize that the stealth isn't really a functional strategy through a lot of this game, part of the reason why that's the case is I'm pretty sure the detection mechanics are just glitchy and broken. Um, there have been multiple times when I was playing my way through this game when I would, like, get seen by someone, and not, like, actually detected, but seen, and they come to investigate. Um, and then they would never leave me alone. Like, I would get to a place where I could hide from them without actually being in a hiding place officially, and they would just stand there, like, hovering until forever, um, or until I just, like, dropped out of the area so they would leave me alone. Multiple of the really important stealth-intensive portions take place on, like, you're attacking a ship or you're attacking a fort, and you don't actually have stealth options. You don't actually have hiding places that you can use in these cases. Um, so as a result, these, these you know, people who have seen you will literally just never go away, and it makes it really, really difficult to do stealth in many of these cases. Um, the forts, for example, every time I came to one of the new forts, which kind of have rough functionality with, like, the Borgia Towers and Brotherhood. Um, so, you know, you need to conquer them and, and, and like, sneak in or, or kill the captain and, like, blow up the powder magazine and then, like, raise the colonist flag so the colonists take over the place. Um, as much as they very much seem to be encouraging stealth, they are very frustrating to get through, and it is really difficult to pull the stealth off. The guards just see you too quickly, investigate too closely, and in a very contained environment like these forts are, it's really hard to get away from them. It is usually easier and more time-efficient to just get in a fight and literally kill them every, like whenever they come to you. It is easier to do it that way. Which, again, indicates a, a failing on the game's part, in my opinion. Like, for all of the tools you have at your disposal, for all of the stealth abilities you do in fact have the opportunity to use, and there are a fair number of them, and the environments are designed for some kind of stealth navigation, in effect, practically speaking, it doesn't work. Um, we are seeing a very clear move away from the stealth mechanics here in Assassin's Creed 3, either intentionally or unintentionally. And at the same time, we're seeing a move away from the combat as well. Which is weird. Like, these are the two options, these are the two ways that you interact with the game, and yet the game kind of deprioritizes both. The combat isn't nearly as engaging or exciting as the earlier games, um, and the stealth isn't nearly as viable as an option as the earlier games. So you're really just going to be running around the city a lot. Um, so what about the actual business of assassination? Like, this has always been a huge feature of the game that's on the friggin' box. Like, this is the title of the franchise. What about the assassinations? And there are a few really good assassination options. Like, there are a couple where you, like, circle around an area, get to a secret, a, like, good position, and then pounce on the guy, and it's perfect. Like, absolutely perfect Assassin's Creed 
like exactly what you know the games have been sort of advertising and, and sort of encouraging you to do this whole time you know some of the best assassination moments that i've played so far in the franchise are here in assassin's creed 3 but only some of them um, the format that used to go before, the, the idea that like every mission would be, you know, you have to come to terms with a new area, and then you perform an assassination in that area as like the climactic, you know, interaction. That format is here, but more in theory than in practice. Um, most of the missions, the big assassination scene at the end is going to boil down into something completely different. Um, you're, like, the mission where you spend all of the time in the prison, you will, in fact, get an opportunity to assassinate someone at the end, but it's not going to be a careful stealth assassination mission. It is just, like, this big set piece, you're going to the execute, to be executed, and then you, like, bust loose at the last minute and chase the guy in a slow-motion run before he gets to George Washington. Like, it's not what we've seen in the past. It's not about planning, it's not about tactics, it's not about strategy, it's about big cinematic set pieces. It's about big, exciting, like, dramatic moments in the series. Which means we have more of a story focus here, at least in theory. But we'll get back around to that one as well. Um, I should also emphasize that when I say that there are fewer tools for navigating the environment, for, you know, doing stealth, a lot of that comes down to many of the things that we saw in earlier games just being absolutely subtracted from this entry. Which, again, makes sense from a time period, historical period sort of standpoint, but from a actual commercial standpoint, like, sequels do not take stuff away from the games that they tend to follow. Um, this is kind of a bold move on Ubisoft's part, and perhaps a misstep in some ways. So we don't have bombs. Again, like, after Constantinople and, like, all of the cool different bombs that you can craft in Assassin's Creed Revelation, they're gone. Like, you have smoke bombs again, hooray, uh, but you honestly won't get many opportunities to use them unless you're very deliberately using them, because the menu that were, by which you choose your secondary weapon is rough, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, you also don't have factions. Um, so, like, back in Assassin's Creed 2 and its sequels, you had the, the courtesans or the... the uh, Romani, you had the thieves, and you had the mercenaries, and you could, like, hire them, and they would, you know, do a dirty job for you, like, distract people for, away from a target, or, you know, and, like, get guards into a fight so you could slip past them or, or dis dispatch them more easily. Those are just straight-up gone. There are no factions here. Or rather, the factions have a fully different function. Um, after you do a couple of activities, you'll find that, like, you get to be a part of, quote, clubs, uh, like the Frontiersmen, or the Hunting Society, or the Thieves, which, honestly, like, I didn't even find the Thieves the first time I played the game uh, this time around, and I was, I, like, only discovered them after the epilogue, which is a bummer. Um, but all of these things you just, quote, attract their attention by doing certain activities. So if you spend a lot of time hunting in the woods, the Hunting Society will pay attention to you. Um, if you spend a lot of time discovering locations and collecting items, the Frontiersmen are interested. If you pickpocket a bunch of people, the Thieves are interested. That's what it comes down to. Um, once you have gotten their attention, they'll usually give you missions. Just a few. Like, there's, some of them are really kind of 
specific to the the environment like the frontiersmen give you all of these great americana legend sort of things like you have to track down sasquatch at one point or find out like about this ufo that people have been seeing and it's always about debunking these things you know you've got like oh sasquatch is actually just this random dude who's living in a cave and you know is hasn't bathed recently. Um, the UFO is just some lady's parasol stuck in a tree that was, like, reflecting moonlight at one point. Um, which is kind of typically American. Which is especially funny because then you finally get to the, the legend of Sleepy Hollow. You know, the headless horseman. And he's real. <laughs> like, he's a legit guy with a pumpkin on his head who is carrying a head. Like, he's clearly just a person, but at the same time, he is absolutely just making the legend happen. Um, so that was quite a fun little fake out. But again, you don't have any real positive interaction with these factions. They'll unlock like a couple of things for you to, to produce, but you don't get to like hire the frontiersmen to, to you know start a fight with, with British soldiers in town or something. That's not the way that this works. Um, to accommodate this, the assassins... Like, you, you have the whole assassination recruitment thing going on, like we did in Assassin's Creed 2 and it's, or in Brotherhood and, and Revelations, because it wasn't there in Assassin's Creed 2. So you can, like, summon an assassin to assassinate someone. Here in Assassin's Creed 3, you can summon them, and they do a wide variety of various tools of, like, skills for you. Um, you can hire your assassins to, like, dress up as redcoats and lead you through a uh, a, a checkpoint or something. You can hire assassins to, like, snipe people out of nowhere. Um, you can hire assassins to distract guards the way that the thieves used to. So it's not like it's totally subtracted, totally vanished from the game. But honestly, I don't remember that I had that as an option most of the game. And for most of the game, you don't have it as an option. The thing about the assassins is you have to physically recruit them and complete a whole bunch of missions across the area in order for them to be able to use these powers and, and tools later on in the game. Uh, likewise, we also have that sort of mini-game where you're, like, sending assassins to various places, in this case the, the 13 colonies, to do various missions and get you other rewards. But this, too, is weirdly difficult to navigate. I couldn't even figure out how to, like, access that menu for a long time on this playthrough, much less actually do the all of the missions um and by the time that you were actually like getting to the uh when you would need them the most you do not have access to them let me put it that way it takes so long for you to recruit all six of your potential recruits and get all six of these powers because it requires you to basically do all of these missions across all of the locations in boston and new york that it's probably going to be two-thirds of the way through the game or more before you've got access to some of these powers, which is rough. Like, one of the advantages of, of Assassin's Creed 2 introducing them so early and training you on their use so early um, is that you are encouraged to use them throughout the game. You see these opportunities, you read the environment, you use these abilities in order to, to turn the situation to your advantage. But that's just not here. Like, it's just pulled down from a menu that you only unlock two-thirds of the way through the game, which is really, really rough. Um, moreover, a lot of the stuff that you can, in fact, build, or the, the upgrades to your pouches and stuff, are, again, 
unlock through the Homestead missions, which is also unlocked late in the game. Like, in order to be able to get something like the basic upgrade to carry more ammunition for your pistol, you've got to have the tailor lady who you can only recruit, like, after you have recruited five or six other members of the Homestead and upgraded multiple members of the Homestead. I'm pretty sure it's only after you get to New York, which again is over halfway through the game. So a lot of the upgrades, a lot of the powers are weirdly withheld from you for a long time. And part of that is story service. Part of that is just, you know, bad design, I suspect. Um, part of that is, like, stretching this the upgrades out so that you don't, like, go into your early fights super overpowered. Um, but it's weird. Uh, it's very unintuitive. Um, now, the homestead we should talk about. Like, there's multiple dimensions to what's going on with the homestead here. First off, again, you've got this sort of whole series of secondary quests where it's like you're recruiting people to join the homestead, and then you're developing your relationship with them and developing their relationship with one another as the game goes on. So you start with a basic recruitment. Like, you find some random dudes being bothered by British soldiers. You like help them out they agree to join your town and now you've got you know people who are making lumber for you or a guy who makes like barrels and does woodworking for you um as your your town gets more sophisticated more missions are unlocked and you have the access to the tailor or the doctor or you know any number of other participants um and on the one hand it's cool seeing this town grow a lot of the missions have a, are rooted in these characters as characters like the two wood lumberjacks are like these two brothers who absolutely hate each other and are constantly getting into fights so you have to like break them up um and like keep them from killing each other only to discover that this happens all the time and their wives are totally cool with it and like they, this is just gonna happen every few months apparently um so you've got character for these characters. You like you end up invested in their lives and their activities, which is really neat. Like it's again the same sort of basic gameplay underlying these missions: go to place, fetch the thing, or you know break up a fight, or you know actually get into a fight, or you know like you at one point the the doctor is being defamed and you have to like take down a whole bunch of. Uh, you know, propaganda against him and bribe a whole bunch of kids who are, like, telling stories about him. Um, so again, it's using the same mechanics in the game. It's not really, like, developing them in any great detail, but it's got reason for it in a way that many of the other missions just don't, um, which is neat. And furthermore, you've got this sort of secondary quest where you're trying to, like, research all of these random people for the quote encyclopedia of the common man which is like the most enlightenment thing and it absolutely totally fits the 18th century perspective and environment um which basically just boils down to you watching as these characters go about their lives like there's distinct animations for the hunter lady as she, you know, is cleaning her gun or as she's, you know, field stripping a deer. Um, there's a distinct animation for the blacksmith, like, making the, the uh, rings for a barrel, um, which is really neat. Like, that's where a lot of effort would have to be devoted for these bespoke animations to really, you know, be observed and for the game to sort of encourage you to go find them. So there's a real effort towards realism, towards sort of inviting the player to look at these characters as sort of 
representatives of their community, their trade, and see how actual colonial life would have worked. Which makes sense, because you hang around any of the various historical locations on the East Coast for any length of time, and this is what is generally focused upon. Like, if you go to Fort Ticonderoga, they will show you how to sew buttons onto a uniform, and they will have a great deal of effort devoted towards making sure that the tailoring is historically accurate, that the cooking is historically accurate. Um, the historical accuracy here, at, or at Colonial Williamsburg, or at Plymouth Plantation, like, all of those things are features of the American historical, like, uh, subject of study. Like, I realize that for many of my listeners, you know, they do not have access to the East Coast the way that I do. They haven't, like, simmered in this environment. Um, but I have spent a an inordinate amount of my childhood and early adulthood and even present adulthood hanging out in these places, seeing like historical reenactors, reenactments of battles from the Revolutionary War and Civil War, seeing a great deal of attention paid to otherwise minute and seemingly innocuous details of colonial life. And this game gets that. Um, it's clear that the developers of this game spent time there as well. Like, if the entire Ubisoft team didn't have a group tour of Fort Ticonderoga or Colonial Williamsburg, I would eat my hat. Um, it's obvious that the research has been done. It's obvious that they are using the historical sources that they've got. It's obvious that they're devoting that effort to understanding and faithfully portraying that amount of time. And on the one hand, again... I admire the effort, and on the other hand, it is so familiar to me that I really didn't want this for my Assassin's Creed game. Like, again, I knew this stuff. I had been percolating in this stuff for years. This is my backyard. Um, and they absolutely nailed that stuff. Um, likewise, you know, even the way that the, the places and the, the locations are oriented, like, New York is this lovely grid of streets and, and boulevards with all of the, you know, like, buildings nicely organized, totally faithful to the Amsterdam architecture arrangement of the original Manhattan Island, and faithful to New York to this day. Likewise, Boston is just a giant mishmash of, like, wandering paths that don't seem to go anywhere, and none of the streets are aligned or parallel, which is totally faithful to Boston, because the entire city basically grew up on a series of cow paths. Um, so, as far as historical accuracy is concerned, this game is 100% faithful. The trouble is, it's a bad game. Like, for all of the homestead being this rich environment where you can see firsthand the way that all of the, the trades are conducted, where you get to see this sort of firsthand account of basic colonial activities, like two people falling in love and getting married, you get to see a funeral firsthand, you get to see, you know, people doing their jobs, one guy being chased by the Redcoats, you know, a family having a baby, like, you get to see all of that stuff, and it's really cool, and it's really grounded, and it really enriches the world. At the same time, the homestead's gameplay function is basically, okay, so all of these people will make stuff for you. Like, you can get wood for the lumberjacks and have the wood maker or the carpenter turn it into a barrel, which you can then use to store ale made by the innkeeper, and then you can take that ale and you can put it on a convoy and you can sell it at any one of the shops that you've discovered over the course of the game world. Or for that matter, if you've cleared the naval pathways, which again, are going to take you like two-thirds of the way through the game to even make use of this, 
then you can like ship it down to Kingston in Jamaica or something and sell it there. And on paper, this sounds awesome. Like, this is exactly how the economy of the colonial world would have worked. The trouble is the menu system, the UX here, is so poorly designed that it is just a nightmare trying to do something even as simple as selling your furs to a random general store owner. Like, every time you select an item to be shipped from one place to another, it is a chore navigating the menu. Like, on a very basic level, the menu resets every time you select an option. So it's like, all right, if you scrolled all the way down to Connor's personal inventory and scroll all the way over to the beaver fur that you want to sell on this convoy, and then you successfully, like, mark the beaver fur to be sold to whatever, like, shop that you've chosen, if you want to select another beaver fur you are going to have to go all the way through that process again. It does not remember where you left off. The whole business of, like, crafting items, selecting items, it is so unnecessarily arcane and just Byzantine in its design. Like, even to the fact that the scroll wheels... Again, like, when you're playing Assassin's Creed 2 and you want to select a new bomb to use... Um, like, if you're choosing what your secondary weapon is supposed to be, it used to be that you just held down a button, pointed the joystick in a certain direction, selected that item, and were done. But now the menu requires a loading screen. So even if you're switching from your pistol to your bow, it's going to take you time, which means that you're not going to do that readily. Just as the assassination, like the assassin recruit menu and all of those cool options that are here to replace the thieves and the courtesans, it requires a loading screen to get there. Maybe that's just the PS3 version, in which case I apologize if you're playing on PC or Xbox and I imagine the remaster has done away with this problem. But I can't be sure because the design suggests that that's kind of intentional, which I cannot understand. So on the one hand, from a story perspective, from a like philosophy perspective, from a historical accuracy perspective, the homestead is awesome. But from a gameplay perspective, it is so broken. And the entire economy in this game is so broken and so arcane and so time-consuming and so usually not worth it. Happily, the game knows this, because it doesn't make you do this. You do not have to send a single shipment out anywhere over the course of the game. And if you do, you know, kudos to you for being that dedicated to a system that is clearly just extremely inefficient and very broken and probably fixed easily fixed by the middle managers in the accounting department if they bother to ask them. Again, I can't help but think that this is a matter of time constraints that this was the first draft of this menu and not the final draft. That so much effort had to go into polishing so many of these new features that a lot of the basic necessities for this game just went by the wayside. Which brings us to the ship battles. So the ship battles are probably the biggest new addition, and they are great. Like, they are arguably the most fun part of this game. Which is weird, because this is not supposed to be a game about ship battles. Um, I don't want to get too deep into it, because obviously we're going to be talking about this a lot more when we talk about Assassin's Creed 4, which is basically all ship battles all the time. Um, so I don't want to like get too deep, but I do want to say it's impressive. The fact that we have a whole bunch of new locations to feature these ship battles, the fact that the 
implementation of the ship battles is so well executed. The fact that there are, in fact, different weapons and ways to upgrade the ship, and this actually proves to be like the main way that you're going to be sinking the money that you make, assuming that you bother with it at all. This was really cool. And many of the ship missions are really cool, both the ones that you're actually, like, in a ship the whole time, or where you have to, like, sail somewhere and then just get off the ship and then, like, infiltrate someplace. They're all really well executed. Um, the ship battles are a feature that are definitely worth advertising on the back of the box and a feature that people did, in fact, get excited about, which is no doubt why they ended up to being the, the centerpiece of Assassin's Creed 4. Um, so it's a thing. It's just disconnected from everything else that's going on. And that's what I wanted to emphasize throughout. Like, just like I said before, this is a game that shows signs of being disconnected. There are a lot of cool gameplay features here, but a lot of them are very disparate from one another, very disconnected from one another. And while no one of them is so necessary to the completion of the game that you have to do it, like you do not have to do the homestead missions, you do not have to do the, the ship battle missions, you do not have to do many of the little side quests for the frontiersmen of the Boston Brawlers or whoever, um, at the same time, that just means that we've spent less time working on them. Which means, for all of the various diverse things that you can do in this game, very few of them are polished. The combat is lackluster. The stealth is lackluster. The evasion, evading enemies who are chasing after you is lackluster. The big like set-piece battles against the British are lackluster. And the big homestead missions where you're supposed to be like sending things from place to place and making money are a giant pain in the butt and just absolutely not worth it. But on the other hand, the ship battles are freaking awesome. So clearly this was a huge focus of the game and a huge design priority, which is why probably I am anticipating things wrong. And in fact, they were planning Assassin's Creed 4 long before Assassin's Creed 3 was underway, we're probably re reading this the incorrect direction. But what I'm saying here is that this is a very uneven game. You will have a lot of fun some of the time, and you will have some fun a lot of the time, and you will have no fun for some of the time. And it will vary wildly, depending on what activity you are engaged in at any given moment. So with that in mind, let's talk story. If the gameplay is uneven, what about the through line? And we got to talk about the main thing right out of the gate. Like, if, I, if there were two things that I remembered about my first playthrough on Assassin's Creed 3, it was basically, like, Connor is a Native American, and the game has a giant, awesome fake-out at the beginning. So... So again, we are playing as Desmond as sort of our overarching framing device here. At this point, like, Lucy is dead, has been dead for a while. Desmond, along with the Scooby Squad, now augmented by Desmond's dad in Assassin's Creed Revelations, as played by John Delancey, God bless him. Um, they're all hanging out in these American, like, precursor ruins. There's apparently, like, this whole facility underground that is apparently where the secret weapon of the precursors was, was placed in order to protect the world from any future solar flares or whatever's going on. Um, you take up shop in here, you set up the Animus, um, but it turns out that the thing that you need to access is hidden behind this magical wall thingy, and you need this key, which is apparently an amulet that is being worn not by Connor, but Hatham Kenway. 
And the first historical mission you're going to undertake is Haytham Kenway conducting an assassination at the Royal Opera House in London. And it is awesome. And then you are Haytham Kenway sailing over to the colonies, and you've got to, like, take care of potential mutinies and find an assassin on board and, you know, the whole thing. And it's also awesome. And you get to the co colonies, and you start recruiting people to your team. You find, like, this random British lieutenant, and you get this, like, random, you know, British soldier who's kind of a bore and making very rude and like, lewd comments to the women in the, the group, and you've got, like, this random colonial patriot officer, and you are recruiting all of them only to discover about, like, three or four hours of the game, oh no, you're not actually assassins, you're Templars. Like, it's this huge fake-out, and it's designed as this huge fake-out, and the first time I played it, I remember being totally faked-out. I was like, what? And the game makes a big deal out of it, like, Sean does this whole what moment, like, it's a big deal. And it works, I think. A lot of people criticized it at the time because, again, remember, this game was so hyped, and it was so hyped in favor of Connor. So you start playing the game, and you're like, where the heck is Connor? He's literally on the front of my box, holding a tomahawk, getting ready to kill this British dude. Where did he go? So on the some level, the marketing here was completely out of step with what the, the fake out was trying to do. Like, if the folks at Ubisoft had been thinking correctly, they would have absolutely played up Haytham Kenway as the primary protagonist of this game. They would have absolutely tried to snow everybody by having this be the primary marketing. Not Native American Connor, but Haytham Kenway. Because here's the thing. The fake-out is serving two purposes. Yes, it's got the whole buzz-inducing, like, shock twist you know, change of, of plans halfway through the game. But importantly, Haytham Kenway is what we imagine a colonist to look like. He is a smartly dressed, very capable, charismatic British guy who comes over to the colonies, starts to build his organization, and this is exactly what we would expect an Assassin's Creed game set in the colonies to look like. But importantly... It is a feint. It is a fake-out. Haytham and all of his fellow cronies on the Templars are all white colonists. They're all British dudes. They're all people who have come here. Importantly, you will be fighting not as Haytham and his posse, but as Connor, a Native American child, indeed a Native American bastard child by Haytham Kenway, in a Native American community who grows up there, learns the ropes through his Native American heritage, and then when he, in fact, tries to find the assassins and meets up with Achilles, you find out that he's a black guy, a freedman in his own right, somebody who probably escaped from slavery or was bought and freed, who is now living his own very self-contained, very private life here on the edges of society somewhere in Vermont somewhere. On the one hand, as far as the story goes, I think this works. I think this is dynamite. I think that this absolutely effectively like misleads the player and has you seriously thinking about you know, the Assassin and Templar loyalties. But more importantly, it draws a very important distinction between who really live here, whose home is it really, and what do we imagine the home of this place to be. Haytham and the Templars are outsiders. 
And we imagine the story of the American Revolution to be primarily the story of white colonists. We think of the heroic George Washington and Thomas Jefferson fighting against the evil British loyalists. You know, the way that the game was hyped. But instead we are put in the shoes of the people who live here originally, the victims of this society. And not to get ahead of ourselves and get into the philosophy too deeply, but this is one of the core concepts at the core of this game. We are not talking about a strict patriots versus loyalists with patriots as the good guys and the assassins and loyalists as the bad guys and the Templars for all of this game. The real factions in place here, the real distinction between the assassins and the Templars, is that the assassins are universally these people who have been oppressed by the Templars who are universally representing the oppressors. And that oppressed versus oppressor distinction is not the same as the colonist versus, like, British, you know, imperialist distinction. It is not the same as the patriot-loyalist distinction. It is very much rooted in the Native Americans, the black people, the immigrants who are being persecuted for one reason or another. Like, even when you interact with the various people on your homestead who join the assassin's cause, they tend to be black people or Scots who have been, like, drummed out of, you know, a... a, a community because of their heritage. We've got, again, a doctor whose property has been seized by a, an apprentice aligned with the British, and a carpenter who all of his property has been seized by patriots. Like, the distinctions here are not as cut and dry as Americans tend to like to believe. As much as this game has a lot of problems, the fact that they are willing to talk about this in 2012, like, several years before this started to become mainstream and people really started to criticize the major narratives of the Revolutionary War, that's pretty impressive. It's pretty bold. It may be because this is a European studio that was not looking at the American Revolution from, you know, the wide-eyed perspective of children who have been hearing these stories from their teachers from, you know, American-made textbooks for literally decades at this point. They have an outsider's perspective. And generally, this game does not land hard on the side of either the Loyalists or the Patriots. It does not land on the side of the guys in the blue coats or the guys in the red coats. George Washington is, as far as the game is concerned, a controversial and complicated figure, not just a flat-out hero, much as the back of the box might suggest otherwise. So, the fake-out has both of these purposes in mind. As much as a lot of people were upset by the fake-out originally, because, again, they had to wait multiple hours to actually play as the guy on the front of the box because the hype machine wasn't working properly, and as much as they totally missed, you know, like, the, the sort of greater social implications or possibly were angry about them, this is really interesting to me. Like, the fact that this was a huge fake-out and one of the few things that I remember about this game from my original playthrough, that's already pretty high praise, but the fact that there are in fact major social implications, that this does in fact reflect my more robust understanding of this, you know, conflict and the various factions and peoples involved, that's impressive. And there has been a great deal of effort expended on especially researching the, quote, Mohawk Indians, 
Um, I'm not going to try and pronounce the name because I'm going to totally butcher it if I do. Um, but the Native Americans who were, in fact, living in this area sort of wrapped up in both the French and Indian War and the, the Revolutionary War, the, the group of, in, of Native Americans that Connor himself hails from, um, a great deal of effort has been you or expended to make this as historically accurate and as faithful a picture of these people as possible. And at the same time, we're not getting a pure noble savage trope here. Like, we are not getting, you know, Last of the Mohicans, just, they're so good and noble, and there's nothing wrong with them, those poor Native Americans. No, they have their own political problems, their own allegiances. Connor himself screws the pooch on multiple occasions, and it is heartbreaking to see at the very end of the game when Connor returns to his original Native American settlement and finds that everybody has been displaced. That the new, brand new American government that Connor himself has fought to fought for and tried to defend, ended up destroying his village despite all of his best efforts. Like, that's devastating. And it definitely sort of drawing back this central theme that the game wants to emphasize, namely that the real fight here had nothing to do with the Patriots and the Loyalists. That was all set dressing, and the fact of the matter is the ruling class did not change over the course of this grand war. Yes, the flag might be different. Yes, the national identity might be different. But the same people who were getting the short end of the stick before are getting the short end of the stick now. For all that big talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, for all that high-minded enlightenment morality about rationality and human nature and human dignity, here we see the reality of it, and the reality is people are still dumping on the Native Americans, the black slaves, all of these people who were caught up in this big war are no freer now than they were under the British. And in fact, the British might have protected them better in some cases, especially knowing that the British did in fact have long-standing pacts with many of the Native American tribes in the Americas, and the fact that the British would release their slaves long before the Americans did theirs. This as much as it is presented as, at some points, as a heroic battle of, you know, the persecuted against the persecutor, and as much as Connor gets caught up in that persecuted versus persecutor mindset, really it is just a fiction. And none of the loyalties, none of the actual power structures will in fact change by the end of this game or by the end of this war. That sucks, and it is very faithfully presented in this game. It's not 100% faithful, and it definitely gets distracted a lot of the time. But it is a major theme and a major idea that is being kicked around here. So once again, like we saw in Assassin's Creed Revelations, that whole freedom versus order debate, assassins versus Templars, once again it does not line up with the major players in the actual divide. It's not like Assassin's Creed 2, where it's like the Medicis are always good and the Borgia are always bad, and therefore you fight for the Medicis and the Medicis fight for freedom, but the Borgias always fight for control and therefore don't ask questions. No, here we are seeing that historical complexity firsthand. The Assassins are not 100% aligned with the, the Patriots, and whenever Connor thinks that they are, usually he's about to be disappointed. 
Um, there is a major scene in the game where Connor has been sort of getting supplies for George Washington with the help of his father, Haytham, because it turns out they're on the same side now that both of them see the, that the colonists are likely to win. So Haytham is trying to, like, set up Templar power under colonist or under patriot control. And you are fighting on the same side for a little while, which is already an indication that things are kind of ugly and probably things are not where they're supposed to be. You finally do bring back the supplies to Washington, and Haytham reveals that Washington has, in fact, ordered the destruction of your native village as a part of the whole Sullivan Act, which is, in fact, a historical thing. Washington was very complicit in destroying many Native American settlements who were allied with the British and harassing Patriot forces. So you have to rescue them. You have to take down Patriot forces. You absolutely deliver some serious invective to Washington about betraying his principles and his ideals. And Washington, at the end of the day, becomes a very ambiguous figure. Um, but, and I should stress, but, it's not consistent. Whenever you liberate a fort from the British, you do so and the Patriots charge in and it is represented as though it is a sheer Patriot victory because Patriots are good and Loyalists are bad. Like to the point that you take down the Union Jack and you raise the, you know, 13 colonies, Stars and Stripes, and it's like waving and, you know, very patriotic and very exciting and very, you know stupidly jingoistic like fr more frequently than not when you are on side missions it's going to be all pro-patriot and never pro-loyalist um the british are much more consistently the bad guys they will attack you more readily than the patriots usually do more often than not um but importantly when you in fact beat the game and the patriots are in charge you'll find them wandering around and they will attack you just as readily as the redcoats used to um so what we're seeing here is, again, distraction. There is clearly an effort to represent this war as something more complicated and more socially messy than it is usually understood. And the fake-out at the beginning of the game is a great way into that discussion. Um, the fact that Connor is frequently asking questions of major Patriot figures like Sam Adams, you know, that is even more indication that, like, at the end of the day, the Patriots are not what they make themselves out to be. That they are not, in fact, protecting the rights of all people, but rather just the rights of themselves. And it's true, some store owners and some shopkeepers and some people who are trying to make money will be protected under this new regime. But many of the people who are suffering the most are going to continue to suffer under the Constitution. Now, with that in mind, we have two other things we really need to talk about here between, you know, like, the, the sort of main story and around the main story. First off, we have the Desmond stuff. And the Desmond stuff is more impressive than it's ever been before. Like, Desmond once finally has, like, stuff to do between the various missions that take place in the historical period that we're bumming around in. Like, Desmond has to go to contemporary places and steal things in order to power up the, the big machine and save the world. Um, but that's it. Like, there's no real story development here, so to speak. Like, you spend a lot of time hearing from Juno, one of the precursors who apparently has uploaded herself into a machine and, you know, sort of guides you through this whole process. Like, she tells you about how there were all of these failed attempts to save the world and how ultimately the best thing they could come up with was, like, uploading their consciousness into these machines and, you know, devising this one tool that maybe one day would save the world. 
here is where you are, only to be revealed at the last minute that, like, actually she's lying to you and she's going to be released and you're going to, there are going to be huge repercussions if you let, like, Juno loose. It doesn't work. It really doesn't. Like, as a climax of everything that has gone before, it really does fall flat. There is one mission where you infiltrate the Templar base in order to save your dad, and you have to kill Vidic finally using a piece of Eden, and I don't know. It doesn't work either. Like, it's top to bottom just there. Like, it's good to see Desmond finally actually do something instead of just sitting around and letting everybody else do everything while he's, like, half asleep doing, you know, animus stuff. Um, there is something cathartic and refreshing and, and climactic about this. But honestly, like, you save the world in a cutscene. You, you just, like, you literally do all of the exciting stuff with Connor, and then you get jumped out of the animus, and literally, like, two minutes later, it's like, oh, okay, and now the world's saved. Hooray! It just, it never worked. It was never great. Like, I've always said throughout this series that at best, the conspiracy theory nonsense, the whole overarching Desmond D. plot nonsense all basically boils down to it is palatable at best and, you know, just downright annoying and frustrating and stupid at worst. You know, in Assassin's Creed 1, I was excited about it. I wanted to, I wanted to hear more about this. In Assassin's Creed 2, I was disgusted by the whole thing. By Assassin's Creed Revelations, they had done away with most of it, and were sort of begrudgingly including it in the game. Here in Assassin's Creed 3, they had to finish it, and they finished it, and that's all that there is to say about it, really. Like, you do what ex all of the beats that you would expect to be done, and then it's over, and good riddance, in short. Um, the other thing that I want to kind of poke at here is the way that Connor's own story resolves. Like... The story, as much as I've presented this big twist as being rooted in all of these social themes and sort of re-examining the, the historical narrative surrounding the Revolutionary War, as much as I've presented it as this big overarching story struggling between these two poles of, like, Connor being tempted by the Patriot perspective, it is not that consistent 90% of the time. There are certain beats throughout the story that clearly reinforce this idea, that clearly drive home you know, these principles, these questions, these ideas. Um, there are moments where Connor asks questions among the Patriots and gets bull answers, and, you know, you're very much in, encouraged as the player to sort of ask these questions to yourself. There are moments where Connor himself questions his loyalties, and Achilles helps with that because Achilles is always telling Connor to fight the Templars and don't pay any attention to the, the whole Revolutionary War thing. That's not for us to decide. So Connor getting caught up in that both serves the function of, you know, getting the player to indulge in their patriotic heritage, um, as well as basically serving as a, as a feint for the big distraction at the ending, i.e. Connor realizing that ultimately he's made a mistake and empowered a regime that will, in fact, not do anything for the people he most cares about. But along the way, this story is told badly. Like, Connor and Haytham, the idea that, like, this Templar father has given birth to a, an assassin's son and the assassin's son is ultimately bound to kill his Templar father, that's friggin' good storytelling. That's an awesome setup. And it is never executed well. Like, the first couple of hours where you're following Haytham around is great storytelling. It's 
awesome as you know a way to introduce each of the villains and sort of encourage us to hate them so we are in fact invested when Connor ultimately assassinates them. That's a really good strategy towards storytelling. But once the hand once the player is given con control of Connor instead, like you have a couple missions where it's like, and this is how he grew up, and this is his tragic backstory, and this is how his mom died, which are fine. But once he actually makes it to the homestead, it just all falls apart. Like, his relationship with Achilles is never properly dramatized. It seems like they're always just mad for no reason, because presumably large swaths of the story have just been dropped entirely. Um, the relationship between Haytham and Connor... Like, Connor refers to Haytham as though he knows this guy. It's his dad. He has heard stories about him, presumably met him on multiple occasions. But we never see that. There is zero interaction between Connor and Haytham until, like, three-quarters of the way through the game... And it just doesn't make any sense. And their dynamic doesn't make any sense. And while there is this really cool tension between the two of them, once it actually gets underway, once we see that, like, Connor is trying to protect people while Haytham has no respect for human life, like, we see that multiple times, and it's not presented. It's not prepared for us. So Connor actually meeting Haytham for the first time in the game, and Connor killing Haytham is like two hours apart, which is so wrong. Like, the setup here was so good, and the execution was so bad. Uh, the story is so poorly told, and it very much feels like there were other scenes that should have been included. You know, other parts of this game that are just out and out missing. And maybe that's because of the way that it was released. Like, I know that some scenes were only released for the PS3 version, while some were released only for the Xbox 360 version. Maybe the backstory for Haytham and Connor is in the PC version, for all I know. But it doesn't matter. Like, if your game is that incomplete, that noticeably incomplete, if it relies on you to read the dang novelizations before you can actually understand what's going on, before you can actually get invested in the characters, that sucks. That is a poor freaking choice. And as much as, again, the sort of key through line, the, the key conflict here is between Connor and Haytham, that's not how the game ends. Like, you kill Haytham in the second or third to last mission, and then you have to chase Charles Lee down in a surprisingly, like, anticlimactic sort of chase scene that very much devolves into, like, Metal Gear Solid 4, like, sad old man just sort of, like stupidly trying to kill each other and very much devolving into finally, like, you hunt him down in this bar and then you just share a drink and stab him like men do. And it's just so poorly done. Like, it's clearly aspiring to this great emotional climactic moment and it's just so not that. Like, even the fact that it is attempted anticlimax is anticlimactic. It just does not work at all. Um, and it's unfortunate because there's so much potential here. There's so much richness to the setup that could have been, you know, explored and engaged with in a number of ways. Part of the reason why I imagine this game got such mixed reviews was because the, the whole fake-out with Haytham serves to take up, like, a good fourth of the game for a game that I imagine would have been much longer had an adequate amount of time been spent on it. 
At the end of Assassin's Creed 3, the first time that I played it, I felt like it was unfinished. Not just because I was blowing through it, because clearly the game designers didn't care about this stuff, so why should I? But also just because, you know, huge episodes, important story beats to telling a story of this magnitude and weight were just absent, missing, just buried under all of the side quests and, and other missions and the ship stuff, and it's clear that the priority of this game was elsewhere. Um, and that that's not something that a remaster can fix. That's not something that is just, you know, oops, we made a mistake, but, you know, it's still a good game underneath. This was a game that was clearly rushed out the door. It needed at least two years. It got one. And the result is a game that at its best moments has keen insight into the historical period that we're talking about, a game that has something really important on its mind to say about the way that we both perceive this war and the way it actually played out, a game that has some an interesting sort of story and characters, like both serving as their own story, but also as this sort of allegorical structure about, you know, the colonists versus the loyalists, the, you know, fledgling young nation and its parental figure of the loyalists. Like, it's got a lot in its mind and not enough time, not enough energy, not enough resources to actually follow through with it. Maybe that's because it was rushed out the door. Maybe it's because the folks on high said, you've got to have ship missions, or you've got to have, you know, stupid little Red Dead Redemption mini-games. This is a game that was devoured in its process. A game that aspired to be a sweeping epic at the beginning of um, the American nation that ended up very much just farting out by spending all of its time on stupid distractions. All poorly executed, all indifferently presented. There are some moments that shine in this game, and I don't want to downplay that, and I'm glad that I played it again so I could appreciate that more than I did back in 2012. But it's still so half-assed. It is still embarrassingly unfinished. It is still very poorly executed. And as much as a lot of those side quests make up for these failures of the main story, again, the Homestead missions are gorgeous and are absolutely worth doing and are probably where the heart and soul of this game really does reside at this point. As much as there are all those little bitty conversations that allow you to see the greater heft and import of this conflict, to be able to appreciate what's going on between you know all of these different factions, all of these different perspectives, they're all side content. They're all easy to miss. And for a game that was this messy, there's no reason why you should trust the developer to be presenting something interesting in the margins the way that they actually are. So when it comes to the philosophy of this game, the first thing that you've got to say is that it's incoherent. Just like Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, we've got a game that clearly was developed by multiple teams far, far away from each other with only passing connection to one another, and therefore the inconsistencies are pretty widespread. Where this game is very interested in interrogating the Patriot versus Loyalist er, conflict, we are also seeing sections where it is no account just support the Patriots because they are good and Loyalists are bad. Um, 
as much as we've got this whole deep connection about the assassin templar loyalties being to you know the underprivileged versus the privileged the idea of you know the, the people at the bottom being the most important to connor and him having a heart for again the slaves the natives the people who neither the patriots nor the loyalists seem to care about that's not something that is expressed in a lot of the side missions you know all of the people you recruit as assassin recruits are white dudes, not Native Americans, not black people. You know, Connor doesn't spend a lot of time freeing slaves, though the opportunities are clearly there, and he has made more fuss in the past over less. Therefore, what do you come up with? What is this game actually trying to say? Once again, I can't help but think that there are some directors with a real vision here, others with less of a vision, and those visions are not being uniformly brought into one perspective. We get different perspectives, complications. We see just an indifference on the part of the game as a whole to the vision that is presented by some or most of the people who are working on it. And that isn't to say that there is no matter here. Like, there is substance. We get the death monologues again. At long last, like, real live conversations between Connor and his various victims talking about, you know, the Templar agenda versus the, the uh, assassination, or the assassin's agenda. Like, we get some more of those sympathetic dialogues that we heard back in the first game, where, like, you kill somebody and they finally reveal their plan to you and you have a moment where it's like, wait, no, this sounds good. We are on the same side, only to discover that they're not. Um... Likewise, we see that the business of freedom is more than just the, the talking points. Like, if there is a consistent through line, it's probably that. It's the fact that we have a lot of people talking a lot of big talk about freedom and not much execution. For all the patriots are interested in the plight of the little guy, that has much more to do with British taxation on local landowners and business owners than it does with any of the natives, with any of the black people, with any of the people who are truly suffering under this system. So that's the legacy of this game. Assassin's Creed 3, I stand by my original assessment in 2012 insofar as I don't think it's a very good game. I don't think it's a very strong entry in the franchise. I think it is a much weaker game than the likes of the first or second. Probably miles better than, than you know, Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, which was just a giant mess. But honestly on par with Assassin's Creed Revelations. There was a lot that I liked about wandering around Constantinople and all of the things that they were doing there. Um, I still kind of begrudge this game. Um, the fact that it happens in my own backyard. And I am definitely grumpy about the fact that you spend so much time killing animals. Like, I am generally not opposed to sport hunting. Like, again, I grew up in rural New Jersey. Like, I knew lots of people who, you know, killed animals for sport or for food or whatever. And I generally am okay with that. But the walking natural disaster that is Connor Kenway systematically exterminating the beaver population of, you know, the, the upper New England peninsulas. Like... That was, that was rough. Like, it is weirdly violent here. And I, I, don't, I just, I don't even know. Like, I realize that there's something kind of weird about, you know, getting uppity about being sympathetic to animals when, you know, you're killing humans by the score in a game like this. Um, but even so, just... 
mercilessly stalking deer, luring them to your position, and then killing them by the dozen. Like, that's... Being encouraged to do that in a game kind of made me feel gross by the end of it. And just, like, leaving these dead things in your wake. I don't know. Like, as much as the frontier has been faithfully represented here, and as much as I appreciate the effort that the developers went to to create a beautiful and yet interactive environment, as much as I like running through the trees like Disney's Tarzan... At the end of the day, the fact that this is all devoted to being able to get the drop on elk and stuff, that, that kind of just, I don't know, I still feel gross. Um, mileage will definitely vary as, as far as that game mechanic is concerned. Um, but again, what I want to stress here is this is a really uneven game. Um, I don't like the gameplay. I think that it is very poorly executed more often than not. I would rather spend more time playing, you know, Assassin's Creed Revelations or Assassin's Creed 2 uh, than playing Assassin's Creed 3. Um, I also I think the story is really neat in some places, but it is very imperfectly executed, especially toward the middle of the game. Um, so, you know, the, that early shock twist I still think is awesome. I still think it's dynamite. I don't know why people were upset about it. It's like the best thing this game has to offer. But at the same time, it falls short. Because Haytham is so dang charismatic and so interesting a character, you want to support him more than you do Connor. Because there's at least a consistency about his perspective. Connor, Connor is kind of a dupe for a lot of this game. And when he's not being a dupe, he's being irrationally hostile. Like, it's rough to sympathize with him, much as his plight is sympathetic and much as the game goes to some pretty great lengths to make him sympathetic. I don't know. I don't know how exactly to come away from this game, in short. I don't know what my overall thesis is, besides it's clearly disjoint, clearly disconnected, clearly uneven, and had greater aspirations than it could actually reach. I do admire those aspirations, though. I think the ambitiousness on display is a good thing. I like the fact that we decided to use this game to have a serious political conversation, one that most games are really shy about having. And again, Ubisoft has become the poster child for our games are not political when they very clearly are. Here in the early stages of that moment, like 10 years ago when Ubisoft was less shy about its politics, I think that that was a good thing. I want to play more games that are rooted in history and are willing to confront the real political realities and problems that these moments in time were about. And when I said back in the first lecture that I was looking forward to a game that was willing to talk about freedom and order in the context of its historical environment, Assassin's Creed 3, as much as it is inconsistent and unable to sustain that conversation, is at least having it. It's at least willing to talk about the way that freedom and order, the way that the priorities of, you know, the, the ruling class versus the priorities of those who are underprivileged and just stepped on over and over again, how that pans onto this debate, how the complication of this freedom and order discussion, the complication of this ruling versus rule debate really is playing out here. I like that we're having the conversation, even if it's not terribly successful. I like that the game ends downbeat. I like that the game is more complicated than just a celebration of Array for the American Revolution, 1776, July 4th, fireworks, flags, etc. Even though the hype machine led us to think that. This game was better than I thought it would be, in short. 
but it's not as good as I would have hoped. Not as a discussion of the American Revolution, and not as, you know, an Assassin's Creed entry. This game is still complicated. It is unhappy. It is a game that I come back to reluctantly, and yet kind of hoping to see more than I expected, and I did see more than I expected. Here on my second playthrough, I did enjoy it more than I did in 2012. It is richer than I originally thought. It's not just a bad game. But it is a bad game. And there's kind of no way around that. Fortunately, next time, we're going to talk about Assassin's Creed 4. And if Assassin's Creed 3 is a game that I remember disliking for any number of complicated reasons, Assassin's Creed 4 is a game I remember freaking loving. So perhaps I'll be disappointed here on our next playthrough, but at the very least we should have an interesting conversation, because as I recall, the Assassin's Creed 4 discussion of the whole freedom versus order thing is robust and rich. So, I don't know when that's going to be. Again, I've been saying this about all of my lectures. I imagine, hopefully, I will get it done by the end of November, but if I don't get it done by the end of November, chances are I'm not going to get it done until well into December. Um, so, be on the lookout. We will talk about Assassin's Creed 4, Black Flag, and finally see what all that ship battle nonsense was really all about. Um, I look forward to talking about it with you soon.